African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Good morning to you all, Channel Africans. This is African Dialogue. Thank you so much for tuning in to us. We're coming to you live at the SABC headquarters in South Africa. That's in Johannesburg. Listen to us on our DSTV audio bouquet. We're on Channel 802. We're also coming to you from our website on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Ayanda Mkwanazi. We'll be driving the show together with Dumelo Zulu and Dumelo Mukwena. Thank you for tuning in. Coming up after the news, we're going to look at the World Economic Forum. Um, What is on the agenda this year? A very precarious time for economies of the world and also um, considering COVID-19 and how it's crippled economies over the past uh, year or so. Also looking at um, already statements and comments, uh, addresses that have been made by certain presidents, for instance, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking on the issue of vaccine and how vaccines should be shared among other countries and uh, not necessarily controlled by particular countries. And then we look at, of course, um, the Chinese president uh, also making his his address there and relations between the U.S. and the, the Chinese going forward post the Trump administration. Choosing African Dialogue, a reminder that uh, at about... In about 35 minutes' time, we'll get an update from the Econ News, uh, followed by the Sports News. And then at 12 uh, o'clock Central African time, we'll have Africa Midday. Uh, Let's go on with our conversation this morning. And we're looking at the World Economic Forum that's being held virtually. Uh, South African President Sildama Posa on Tuesday urged wealthy countries not to hoard surplus COVID-19 vaccine supplies, adding his voice to calls for global production to be shared more equally. President Ramaphosa was speaking in a virtual meeting of the World Economic Forum with Africa struggling to secure sufficient vaccines to start countrywide inoculation programs for its 1.3 billion people. Uh, The head of the International Gavi Vaccine Alliance, meanwhile, said the surplus doses that richer countries had ordered ran into the hundreds of millions. Ramaphosa, who chairs the African Union and whose nation has recorded nearly half the continent's coronavirus deaths, said the world needed those who had hoarded doses to release them for others to use. To help us with the conversation and just to look at um, the the environment and the atmosphere that the World Economic Forum is taking place in, we have on the line Fatima Hassan, who is the head of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. We're also joined by Sanusha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue. Thank you, ladies, for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. Good morning, Ayanda. Thank you for the invitation and glad to be with you. Sanusha, let me start with you. What do you think would be the key issues to be addressed at this year's World Economic Forum? Um, We are still yet to hear from the Russian president. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the key issue is about the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic is having on all 
of the of the global of, of the global architecture, not just in the uh, the economic space, but in the governance and and just changing the way the the, the 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 formatting and the architecture of international relations has been conducted before. Uh, the World Economic Forum has always been that kind of of setting where that creates this kind of big jamboree for the corporate sector to come together, for presidents and prime ministers and governments to rub shoulders with the with the elite of the economic world and the commercial world, and to be start securing kinds of trade deals. And I think this time around, given the nature of what we are seeing, we 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 have to start asking ourselves to what extent that this model of economic policy making economic development which is very kind of parochial and is based on a very uh, a, a very uh, distinct trickle down effect how that model needs to change because we can see what the pandemic has done and whether that narrative of change and that theory of change that we are calling for that, that most civil society groups and uh, global global civil society groups that are calling for a change in the way uh, the economic uh, the dispensation is conducted, whether that that change will take place, whether we'll see that traction emerge in the in the conversations, in the narrative, in what the World Economic Forum is. Because at the moment, I think a lot of the international uh, international relations arena has been defined by this kind of economic-centric approach to everything can be resolved through the market, everything can be, can be uh, development could be achieved through this economic dimension. But at the end of the day, I think what we, what we have seen with this pandemic is you can't fit the pandemic into an economic agenda. Uh, you can't keep the economic agenda almost insulated and say, let's move the pandemic into what we want to create. And I think the, 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 the idea, the narrative of global capitalism is being re- has to be re- reconstituted, has to be revised, uh, and, and, and there has to be a re-engineering of the way business is done. I think if you look at the Oxfam report yesterday that was released that spoke about the, the, the pandemic or the virus inequality, I think this this is what you're seeing. We see this a lot where uh, poorer, less developed, underdeveloped uh, countries have always been pushed to the periphery of the global economy. It has been about, it has been about corporate, it has been about the, the, the big, the big uh, MNCs, transnationals. But at the end of the day, I think what we want to see is the discourse within how business is conducted to change. We can't go on with this idea that the business of business is business. So I think for me, whether or not that traction finds any footing at Davos this year will be a key issue for me around not just the agenda, but the thinking behind the way business is conducted. And we're looking at, uh, speaking on those developing uh, countries, Sanusha, if I could ask this question to Fatima, if we can go on into the perspective of the vaccine and uh, the remarks by President of South Africa, Silda Maposa, yesterday condemning vaccine nationalism, uh, you know, calling for an approach that is more equitable in making these vaccines accessible. What is your take? Do you think it was the right platform? Thanks. So definitely, I think it was a little bit too late because we've been warning about this uh, pernicious form of vaccine nationalism, which is being carried out by wealthier nations in the global north for months now. Uh, But be that as may, the president has finally spoken up. And I think that there's now a lot of attention on the dire situation in Africa and in other developing countries in the global south in terms of not having sufficient supplies or no supplies of vaccine or probably only getting supplies in 2022 or 2023, which is going to have a huge impact on the ability of the world to achieve population immunity. So the situation at the moment is that people are dying 
in large numbers in Africa and getting sick. We're facing a massive disaster. We were promised solidarity at the beginning of this epidemic. It is not materializing. There is no true solidarity. Let mm. me give you a few examples. Thank you. COVAX, for example, which is supposed to have been serving middle-income and low-income countries who couldn't get immediate access to life-saving vaccines because these countries are regarded too poor or economically poor, can only potentially serve up to 27% of the population in low-income countries by the end of this year, which means that the entire global vaccination drive is not going to work. It is severely at risk. The AU, because of the COVAX limitations and its imperfect voluntary mechanism with a lot of secrecy, not sharing information, not sharing prices, not every single drug company is part of COVAX. Some governments have, are participating in COVAX, some are not. So there's major issues around the way in which this mechanism is working and has been set up. Um, the AU has had to now go and procure its own supplies of vaccines. It's been able to confirm 250 million dosages for the whole of Africa, which must now be split across countries in Africa uh, and, and at prices uh, which have not as yet been confirmed, all while clinical trials are still taking place. In some cases, data is still being provided, and in some cases, uh, regulatory approval hasn't even been granted. So the entire system has been upended. Over and above COVAX and AU, countries like South Africa and others in Africa have now had to engage in bilaterals where they're having to pay prices that they're being told is the price for them. In some cases, we're paying more, which is the irony, than even the AU for certain vaccines, like the AstraZeneca one. And also we're facing a situation of global scarcity, which has been, in my view, self-created by these very wealthy nations, as Manusha correctly points out, who determine the market. So the supply chain problem that we're now seeing in the EU over the last few days, to the point where Germany is even saying that there should be an export ban of vaccines and that it all should, you know, first go to citizens of the EU, for us that is a nationalism round two. That, that is saying that whatever limited supplies there are will only first be given to countries that had advanced market commitments and, and instead of it being distributed according to need. So what you have is a situation of grave inequity where ordinary people mm. who are not even healthcare workers are being vaccinated in other parts of the world, mm. but healthcare workers in Africa are still waiting for their, for their vaccines. And this, we say that this is self-created because you could have dealt with this earlier on. You could have opened up the vaccine know-how. You could have shared the technology. You could have ramped up manufacturing in the global south, but you decided to honor intellectual property claims. You decided to honor the market uh, conditions and the structural issues that would prevent us from getting access. So as a result, we, we, we are now all going to get more sick and we are going to have more death to, to deal with. Mm. Sanusha, what role is global politics playing here? I mean, he did mention what uh, Fatima is saying, that the, the COVID-19 African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team uh, tried to secure uh, vaccines, but it was barely successful. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what Fatima is saying. In fact, what Fatima has highlighted is a fantastic framing of, of the way the political economy around this pandemic has been operating. And not just in this context of the of the COVID-19. It's always been a very disparate, a divisive, and an unequal uh, 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 relationship in the global economy around this uh, around the, the, the 
healthcare issues. I mean, if you go back and you look at uh, and, and Fatima and her team uh, working with uh, with the treatment action campaign, etc., would know this really much better than I do in terms of the whole question around the, the rollout of ARVs, the access to ARVs in combating HIV/AIDS. I mean, that in itself, you could see the way the richer countries, the global politics, had played out in terms of national self-interest selfish interest and not looking at health as a global public good, but rather very much based on what the, what the, 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 the industry actors like the pharma industry and, of course, other actors in terms of the political arena uh, at, at, at multilateral institutions like the WTO, how they played their politics and use the politics of, of access to, to, to medicines, but also uh, using intellectual property rights and, and what we would call trims and trips at the WTO to actually create more barriers around preventing access. And this is where the non-tariff issues, I mean, leave, leave away the fact that there's a whole lot of important questions around the cost of the vaccine, the inequitable uh, uh, value of, of countries paying more than others, also the fact that some of the poorer countries are financing uh, the, 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 the acquisition of the, of, the, of the richer countries just in terms of uh, the... the, the uh, uh, I think it was South Africa paying higher than what the U.S. is paying for the vaccine. I think it's also the non-tariff barriers that you deal with, and that's where the global politics becomes a very a messy affair because the global governance arena and the agenda of the multilateral uh, 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 governance architecture is in a state of complete crisis. The WTO is not moving forward. It's 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 locked. It's jammed. It's locked, and it's and it's and it's kind of. Uh, uh, what you call this, uh, lockdowned in, in, in its own kinds of debates around uh, access to, to, to goods at, at, in terms of tariffs, but the non-tariff barriers, particularly questions around sanitary and phytosanitary issues, has become a key driver, and that is why I think global trade today finds itself in such, a, in such an unequitable position, because just looking at how the global trading arena, uh, regime has evolved, the rules, the norms, the values, the standards, the international trade dynamics, of law has completely broken down, and I think I don't think we're going to see this uh, becoming any better with under what we call pandemic uh, politics and pandemic inequality, because this is what we're seeing. So the bigger nations who have been in control of these institutions, like your WEF, etc., mm-hmm. and of course your, your your WTO, and of course even within the UN, we see how these agencies and institutions of the UN have been hamstrung by the bigger. Uh, richer developed economies uh, and now we're seeing that this inequity that we talk about in the global arena, we're talking about a multilateralism that is in a state of paralysis but we can't, I can't see this multilateralism uh, becoming any better because it needs a complete overhaul of the global governance agenda, the multilateralism. Uh, the fact of the matter is that this has been ongoing and I, and I think what Fatima says is this has been self-inflicted mm. is, is, is basically very of the global politics and the global governance agenda, that for years we've seen how the manipulation of the international system has been to the benefit of some, to the detriment of most. And I think to, to my mind, when I hear people talk about, oh, there's going to be a new multilateralism, or there's going to be a reordering of the multilateralism, it doesn't happen when sovereignty, national interest, secu- national security interests, and this is also being looked at in the pandemic. I think the vaccine is not just about vaccine nationalism, it's about how vaccine 
security interests are also being played out, uh, where you are basically thinking first and foremost of your own nation and then the rest of the world, where uh, it's becoming very, very, dis- very disconcerting to see even the industry actors and how they play as a kind of mafia in this industry. And finally, just to make the point that you know, as, as this has not been something that has been uh, that has just sprung up here in in terms of the global economy and the global politics. This has been a, a long time in the in in the way that politics has conducted itself in the health sector, in development cooperation, as well as with regard to trade regimes and trade norms. Hmm. Fatima, is there a role here for civil society to play? You know, whether it's in terms of um, putting pressure on governments to fast track this process so that it is prioritized and these delays are then uh, reduced? So definitely, and I think it links back to what Sanusha said earlier about whether you agree that the vaccine is a public good and if you treat it as a public good, then it's not just civil society, but governments who actually do have a lot of power, even our own government has power, which it's not using, to try and you know, ensure that the way in which the world is actually dealing with the licensing, the regulatory approvals, the manufacturing, is all within the framework of regarding a vaccine as a public good because you are in a pandemic in the middle of a health crisis. And I mean, we, based on our HIV AIDS experience, we warned in March of last year already that the same thing will happen and we will be last in line for access to vaccines in Africa like we were with ARVs. And the very same dynamics are playing out. In fact, it's even worse because this is regarded as an unprecedented once-in-a-century type of pandemic, which is a highly infectious disease. So it's not easy to actually get out of it globally until everyone everywhere is safe and until everyone everywhere is vaccinated. And so this is why I think the president's comments were were really interesting and intriguing because he's finally taken it to a platform where there's a lot of power and a lot of vested interest and a lot of money. And he's saying to the government that not just Uh, that we have an issue with the hoarding and the vaccine nationalism. But these very governments put money on the table to accelerate the research. In many cases, these vaccines are actually co-owned by some of the governments and leading members of the, you know, that attend the WEF and are part of the G20. The U.S. government, for example, co-owns the Moderna vaccine. Moderna is not coming to Africa anytime soon, according to the information we have. Uh, we also don't know when it will submit regulatory approval dossiers in any part of the of of, of the of the global south and, and the global poor. So it's decided to segment markets. It's taking a very economic approach, as far as we know. And the information that we have available, which is also included in its own press statements and, and filings, is that it will first prioritize approval in richer nations. It will first prioritize access in richer nations. The EU, the UK, many other governments have co-funded some of the vaccine candidates that we're now trying to basically desperately get our hands on. Yet these very governments are actually now at the moment at the WTO trying to block the ability of the global south to access vaccines much sooner by blocking what we call the temporary COVID-19 TRIPS waiver request. Mm. So I think it's, it's really schizophrenic behavior and conduct. And because on the one hand, you're saying, we want to offer you solidarity. We want to be your trade partner. We want you to enforce human rights 
for example, in Africa. But we won't give you the ability and the means to vaccinate large parts of your population because we will protect the interests of pharmaceutical companies who don't want to come into your market and who are charging inflated prices in some cases. We have four different price lists floating around. The AU has a price list, COVAX has a price list, bilaterals have a price list, the EU has a price list, the US has a price list. I mean, how can you not have price transparency in a pandemic when this research has been co-funded with other public uh, funds and, and resources? And so I think that is the thing that is really disheartening. We as civil society have to now create pressure on all of these governments, including our own, as well as on the WHO and, you know, mainly on the pharmaceutical companies. That's the voice of Fatima Hassan. She's the head of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. She's also joined on the line by Sanusha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue. Let's take a break. When we come back, you know, I'd still like us to talk a bit about um, the, the, the post-Trump administration, um, the relations between U.S. and China, which was soured uh, in the Trump administration. What are we likely to see? A change of atmosphere, a change of um, relationship there? And uh, really, what can we uh, expect going forward, looking at um, post uh, this period that uh, economies are now uh, experiencing with um, lacking resources to fight COVID and uh, really trying to uplift the economies which have been hard struck by the pandemic? Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective on the coronavirus. Coronavirus is a disease that causes respiratory illness like the flu with symptoms such as a cough, fever, and in more severe cases, difficulty breathing. You can protect yourself by washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact one meter or three feet with people who are unwell. If you suspect to have contracted COVID-19, contact the relevant health authorities in your area. Keep listening to Channel Africa. The African perspective will keep you updated on the latest on the coronavirus. 
Welcome back to African Dialogue. A reminder that uh, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Friday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're welcome to interact with us on our Twitter handle at Channel Africa. You can also Facebook us. You can also email us if you've got any suggestions on topics we could do. And our email address is info at channelafrica.co.za. Well, on the program today, we're looking at the World Economic Forum and um, the conversations that are happening on that platform, the environment in which this um, meeting is being held uh, at the moment. The economies are crippled in the world and and a a way forward really in terms of the COVID-19 vaccines uh, and so forth. And we're on the line to Sanisha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue as well as Fatima Hassan who's the head of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. Now Sanisha, under the Trump administration, you know, China and the US traded uh, traded blows on on a range of issues. Um, With Biden's first appearance uh, with his administration, do we expect relations to continue on a sour note? Um, I think it's going to be a very different relationship, but not one that's going to completely overturn the engagement between the Trump presidency and um, the Chinese Communist Party. I think what was very telling from last week's inauguration, um, a small fact, but quite a big message to China was the invitation that was extended to the Taiwan uh, consulate in in, in Washington or to the Taiwan um, diplomatic um, envoy to Washington. And I think that was quite an important message that was sent to the Chinese in a way to say that, you know, as much as you have always uh, saw that Taiwan is part of a greater China, part of the the Chinese incorporated, uh, you must remember that our relationship with Taiwan will continue. And I think the tensions in the South China Sea, we saw what has escalated in the last couple of days, um, as well as in terms of the relationship between Taipei and Washington, is is, is not necessarily one that's going to bode very well for for China. And even 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 the 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 um, the, the, the Biden administration has a few members in the Biden administration, I think it was the National Security Advisor, I stand corrected on that, had also kind of uh, didn't necessarily back down from the comments that Mike, the former Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of State made about uh, the situation in, um, the minor- in, 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 the, in the minority region around the Uyghurs, and they're talking about a genocide. So I think this, this relationship is not going to basically be one that's going to completely overhaul the Trump engagement, but rather it's going to be cautious. There are people in Washington that still feel that there should be a greater control, a greater kind of diplomatic cautiousness towards China. Uh, you're seeing this in the context of, uh, of of what's happening in the region. There's the question of the of the of the quad quadrilateral in in in, the, in Asia, which is made up of the U.S., India, Australia, and Japan, um, and of course the military context. So I think at, at this point in time, it may be uh, not as uh, in your face kind of approach where Trump just kind of spoke and made very 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 dangerous uh, remarks about the Chinese and so forth. Uh, and also bearing in mind that the Trump presidency was very much about business interests, if we take the theme of our conversation today, about aligning to particular business uh, actors and, and business stakeholders in the U.S. economy and in the commercial space. Uh, and so the, really the, the, this, whole, this whole U.S.-China uh, trade war is really around data and how the question of data is being managed by big, big data and big data companies, and data mining and data centers. So it's really around not just about the tariffs, but it's much more elevated this uh, tension around uh, what is what is now called the new gold in the 21st century, and that is 
data. And um, to a large extent, I think the Biden administration cannot completely just move into a different trajectory around this. They still will have, there, there are hawks in, in, in Washington that would not like to see a complete shift and gear towards China. It still has to be about the fact that if you listen to Biden's uh, inauguration speech last week, and if, you li- if you're reading some of the some of the content that's coming out of key think tanks in Washington, you get the sense that China is going to be on a watch list for the for the Americans. It's not going to be a, a relationship that's going to be, oh, yeah, no, we're all good friends and we're all great buddies or whatever. There are key issues in the South China Sea, in Asia, and as well in, in terms of China's keeping relationship in the EU. Just for the benefit of our listeners, Sanusha, how important is it for the U.S. and China to have, you know, an amicable relationship? Very much so, because it's not just about the U.S. and China. It's about global markets. It's about the global economy. I mean, China is uh, the biggest creditor in terms of the, the U.S. debt. Uh, a lot of, uh, of, of, these, of the way the economic uh, trajectory works between China and the U.S. Uh, it relates to uh, the, 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 the ownership and the, and, and the, and the, and the credit around, the, uh, around U.S. bonds and treasury bonds. So this relationship, it's an interdependent economy, and you can't ignore that interdependence and the impact that it has. But it's also about the fact that, you know, they moved. I mean, if you look at China's uh, military capacity buildup and, milit- and, 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 and what it's been purchasing in terms of its military capacity, it's moving up the ante quite fast. And it's becoming quite a, it's created uh, interesting drones. It's bought uh, your, your, your carriers in the South China Sea are specifically designed to go into the South China Sea. It's specifically designed for the ecosystem of the South China Sea. So I think you've got, and then of course, the U.S. sees its own interest, uh, military interest and security interest there. And China has a very, very important footprint across the, the, the Middle East, moving into uh, parts of the North African region. And not, let's not forget, you know, it's moving, it's, it's moving up the ante with its own uh, kind of brand of global public health. So with its relationship in Africa, with Development Corporation, it just released its new Development Corporation white paper. It's, uh, it's trade with, with the EU. Uh, even if you start banning the Chinese apps and whatever, it's not going to change the dynamic that both these economies are ba- basically kind of the foundation of the global economy. And so whatever happens, because of the, inter, the, the economic interdependence of currency markets and emerging markets and the Chinese stocks and the, and the U.S. stocks, you can't ignore that it's going to affect all of us. Until we reach a point where we can, do, we can stand independently of these two nations, I think we, we're in for the, whole, for the long haul here. So in terms of the fact that we, you know, so I've heard debates about decoupling currencies, etc., it's not going to work in that way because of how intrinsic the Chinese market is to the global economy and to the U.S. economy and to each other. So I think at the end of the day, the political economy debates that are happening around uh, the vaccine nationalism issue, the question of of, 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 of creating open data access to the uh, to the to the uh, what you call this the um, the vaccine um, uh, what you call this constitutional makeup etc. China could actually play a much more mature, broader leadership role if it wants to. It doesn't need to get caught up in these kinds of parochial debates about you know having these these debates about oh we need to defend and we need to constantly defend. But at the end of the day, I think. You know, what's really concerning is whether or not these two powers, in addition with what Fatima was saying with regard to South Africa mm-hmm. and other actors in the global south, can move this whole debate around the global government. So one actor we haven't spoken about, which I think plays a key role in our discussion today, is India. Mm.
Uh, let's take a break and then uh, we'll go to Fatima with some of her comments then. There. That's the voice of Sanusha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa. Rise. Channel Africa. From an African Perspective. Welcome back to African Dialogue. As we tried uh, to wrap up our conversation in the in the last uh, uh, eight minutes that we have, let's come to you, Fatima Hassan. You're the head of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. And, you know, if I go back to the issue of vaccines and where Sanusha left off there with the role of India, what would you say? What are your thoughts there? Thanks. So I think the whole way in which BRICS is structured and the role that it's playing in trying to respond to this epidemic actually needs to be disaggregated. So India, for example, has managed through one of its companies to get an agreement from AstraZeneca to be able to manufacture the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine. So they are a sub-licensee of AstraZeneca for the developing world and for markets that are considered to be low income or middle income. But so far, that is the only company that uh, has been given permission to do so because, like I said earlier, the intellectual property is being kept very close to everybody's um, heart. And so the vaccine know-how is not being shared more broadly and uh, more widely in the world to actually scale up manufacturing. So what happened with India was they got this deal and initially they were told that they would be banned from exporting any of the vaccines until everyone in India was actually vaccinated. Now, that's similar to the sentiment that we heard from the German government yesterday and the EU around their concerns about why their supplies of the AstraZeneca and now also the Pfizer vaccine have not arrived in the EU because they had all these dosages committed, but the supplies haven't arrived. So it seems that President Ramaphosa then, at that point, when the country was really demanding that government Government, you know, urgently scale up its action around acquiring vaccines in the, in the last few weeks, uh, had actually a bilateral conversation with the Prime Minister of India, Modi, to actually allow for a concession for some of those supplies to come to South Africa. So we know, for example, that Serum is probably making, uh, at the moment, around 300 million dosages, of which South Africa will get 1.5 million. So that's, that's how India factors into these debates. India has long been the pharmacy for the developing world. It has uh, quite an established uh, generic manufacturing industry. If more companies were to share their vaccine know-how, uh, presumably there are at least three to four different companies in India that could manufacture for the global south. The problem is whether they're gouging and whether they're inflating their prices uh, when they actually do supply to low-income countries. So, so that is another issue that has to be dealt with the Indian government. What's interesting is uh, when Sanusha talked about the U.S. and China relationship. What we're seeing in parts of the Middle East um, and in other parts of the Global South is that China has offered their vaccine uh, at, at zero profit, as many supplies as 
as is feasible to many parts of the world. In South Africa, we're not yet using the Sinovac or Sinopharm vaccine because the data has actually not been submitted for review or for regulatory approval. So you can't, in some countries, roll out a vaccine without the data. But there is a geopolitical war, I think, going to now play out in terms of which vaccine do you use and where do you get it from. And, and the issue for all of those vaccines is, you know, will the public be protected with adequate and, and safe data? Similar with the Russia vaccine Sputnik. In some countries, they're already rolling it out. In South Africa, I believe that there are still discussions. You can only roll it out once the data is actually reviewed and submitted and shared. And so this brings me to the role of Brazil, which is unusually playing uh, a very negative role within BRICS. It's actually opposing the waiver request that was brought by the South African Indian government, yet they are part of the same trade bloc. So what is happening in Brazil in terms of a very anti-science and anti-evidence perspective on, on how to manage this pandemic is, is also playing out within the BRICS trade bloc and also playing out at the WTO. I mean, it's very strange to have a trade partner within BRICS that is opposing to other partners' waiver requests. Um, and so finally, it brings me to the Biden administration that you referred earlier. And so the one thing that we are concerned about is that the Biden administration doesn't follow the Trump administration in holding on to the patents, in holding on to the manufacturing know-how. It has powers available to it right now through the U.S. Defense Act, through various other mechanisms, because it co-funded a lot of these vaccines to actually share the technology and to actually ramp up manufacturing so that, like, I said earlier, everyone everywhere can access it. But if it follows that Trump line of America first and American exceptionalism, then I think, you know, it's going to be no better than the Trump administration. And it's just going to be acting again in, in, in a round two version of vaccine nationalism. Mm. Sanusha, what are your parting shots? You know, all this uh, waiting while people's lives are hanging on the balance. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what, what are these long term, short term effects? Well, the short-term effects is what we've seen currently. I think the geopolitics has just escalated around vaccine diplomacy. We can't call it diplomacy. We can call it uh, the geopolitics of pandemic and and, and, and and access to vaccine. And it's not been something that uh, we haven't been uh, uh, seen, seen before. I think we've seen this a lot when it came to the provision of uh, what should be global public goods. But again, countries putting first their national interests or their national security interests. And at the same time, uh, in this context, I think what we are beginning to see is because this, this virus is infectious at such a high level that the, the fear and then returning to a kind of inward looking and trying to protect your your nationalist, national interest first actually superseded the kind of global governance agenda. So I think we're going to see this a lot as we go into, uh, into medium and long-term effects of the pandemic, but also in terms of not just around, the, around global public health. It's going, to, it's, got, it's going to start, it's already moved into other areas, and there's a, there's a need to rethink these trims and trips and the intellectual property rights and the patents that we are seeing at the WTO. Again, I can't emphasize more that there needs to be a complete overhaul of the global governance arena and the architecture of institutions, because these institutions are archaic, and they're also sitting in 
in a time frame that is beyond, uh, that needs to be re- redefined, recalibrated, because the power dynamics are moving. But again, these are countries, the, G- the, the G7, uh, countries that, are, that belong to the G20. I'm very curious to know, and I think we need to have a discussion on what, what the role of the G20 is, because again, the G20 uh, only looks at the financial architecture of the international political economy and the global economy. But I think this is, this is the cause of concern because of the financial implications that this pandemic is having, not just for, for, for access to vaccines, but across the spectrum. So I think at the end of the day, we're going to be sitting in this kind of quagmire and this cul-de-sac of, 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 geo, of, of parochial geostrategic interests and geopolitics. And those interests are going to continue because we haven't really seen what the, what, whether an alternative is being discussed, whether we are seeing these institutions being pushed forward in terms of the kinds of debates and narratives and the kind of reset buttons that we want to see in terms of a changing global power architecture. But again, we have countries in the global south. I think Fatima picked on, uh, identified China, Russia, uh, and, and, and looked at Brazil. Brazil was a, was a lead actor in, in, under the Lula years of being a kind of actor in the global south, pushing for equitable distribution, etc. But it's quite sad to see that they've went back into a, into a shell in terms of becoming much more nationalistic and, so, uh, and, and, so, and sovereign uh, based in terms of their identity. Uh, but again, I think these are the key issues. Which countries are going to push this agenda, I think is a watching brief for me. Is it South Africa? Are we going to see this happen? Thank you so much to you, Sanusha Naidu from the Institute for Global Dialogue. I think that's a good topic for African dialogue to pursue. You know, the role of the G20, a very important um, that we, we follow that one up. Thank you so much. And thank you to you, Fatima Hassan, the head of the Health Justice Initiative in South Africa. Thank you, ladies, for giving us your time. Pleasure. That's all we have time for on African Dialogue. Join us again tomorrow, same time, same place. Thank you to the show's producers. Thank you to executive producer Charlie Kumalo. Producers are Dumelo Zulu and Benjamin Moshadama. A big thank you to our technical producer, Dumelo Mugwena. Goodbye from the African Dialogue team.